0: Father, you are so, so good. You have given us your son. You have revealed yourself to us in so many ways. Lord, you've revealed yourself to us as creator and sustainer of all things. You've revealed yourself to us as savior. Lord, you've shown us that you are holy and just. And you've shown us, Lord, that you are love and mercy. And I pray, God, as we seek you this morning in your word, that you would guide us, that you would speak to us, that your spirit would teach us, and that you would be glorified in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're we're in verse 29, but we're going to read from verse 27. Uh, I told you last week when I started this message that originally my plan was to go from verse 27 to 39. And I got three pages of notes on verse 27 and 28, and I wasn't done yet. So I thought, well, we'll just do those two verses. But really, this all goes together. So we're going to read it all together. We'll do a quick recap of last week, and then we'll dive in. After these things... Nope, that's... Yeah, that is verse 27. Sorry. Uh, and remember, the things that this is after... Or when the, the friends broke through a roof to lower a paralytic before Jesus. And he healed the man, or forgave the man of his sins. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders, they grumbled, well, who is this man to forgive sins? And Jesus knew what they were thinking. And he said, well, what's easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to rise up and walk? And he said, so you know that I have the authority to forgive sins. He looked at the guy and said, stand up and walk. And the guy didn't. Well, that just made him more angry, but such is life. After these things, verse 27, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi or Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he left all, rose up and followed him. Then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. And there was a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come... When the bridegroom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst. The wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskin will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires the new, for he says, the old is better. So Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew did just that. The first order of business was a dinner party now you know the bible tells us that uh, there is rejoicing in the presence of god over one sinner who repents so i have no problem right at this moment i believe matthew as he came into relationship with jesus even though he probably didn't fully know what it meant yet was likely saved so what's the first order of business let's have a party i like that But I think part of the reason was so Jesus could share his love and truth with those in Matthew's circle, i.e. other tax collectors and those who sat with them. And today we're going to look at the three things Jesus said during this dinner with sinners. I was really proud of that title. I got like no response. Thanks. That's it. You're never going to get a rhyming title again. I'm joking. You probably will. I can't resist. So in verse 29, we'll go back that Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. There were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. The scribes and Pharisees complained against his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered and said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance so at this feast given in matthew's home while they were eating dinner the religious leaders complained to jesus disciples about the company that jesus was keeping and jesus answered them those who are well don't need a physician but those who are sick not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance as always jesus logic is flawless Right, If you're feeling really good, do you go to the doctor? I keep getting these emails from my health insurance company saying, oh, it's time for your annual physical. And I keep erasing them because I don't want to. I feel fine. I ain't going to the doctor. My wife had to have a physical. They want her to do things. Because, you know, we're over 40. I'm like, I ain't doing that. What's the worst thing that happens if I'm really sick? I'm going to go home. Spend eternity in the presence of God. So now if I hurt, something doesn't feel good, I'll go to the doctor. Now I know that's a really bad attitude and and I'm going to pay for it one day. Um, But that's just my attitude at the moment. I can't help it. I can't afford it either. That's very true. Um, But you wouldn't necessarily go to the doctor if you're feeling well. And if you, in and of yourself, are righteous... Why would you need repentance? The Pharisees thought they were fine. And he goes, well, if you're going to be self-righteous and you don't think you need anything, fine. I'm not here for you anyway. But since there is no one who is righteous, according to Romans 3.10 and other places, then Jesus really came to call all of us to repentance and belief in him. What Jesus is saying is that if he is going to call sinners to repentance, then he has to be around sinners in order to give that call. That's what he's telling them. The Pharisees and the, and the religious leaders had this idea that, oh, he keeps terrible company. Oh, how could he possibly be from God if he's going to hang out with people like that? And Jesus is like, they're the ones that need me. That's why I'm hanging out with them. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 13, we read this. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral, or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. Don't even eat with that with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside God judges. Therefore put away from yourselves the evil person. Sorry. So if we're going to win the lost, then we have to be among the lost. Doesn't that make sense? Right? If you need antibiotics, you're not going to get them unless you go to the doctor. If you're going to play pickleball, you're not going to play pickleball unless you go to the pickleball court. If we're going to win the lost, we have to go to the lost. It's that simple. This is part of Jesus' great commission to go into all the world in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's his second greatest commandment to love our neighbor as ourselves, second only to loving God with everything we are, for Matthew 22, 34 through 40. And the only way we can be ambassadors for Christ, pleading with the world around us to be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians 5:20, is if we go into the world with love as our motivation, and share the gospel with those who are lost, with sinners in need of repentance. We do this never forgetting that we are sinners who needed and still need repentance, and the only difference between the one who is found and the one who is lost is the grace of God. But I want you to notice something. Throughout the gospels, Jesus hung out with a lot of sinners, right? He hung out with tax collectors. He hung out with prostitutes. He hung out with lepers. And leprosy isn't necessarily caused by a sin, but nevertheless, those who were cast off from the rest of society. He wasn't ashamed to be around them. He wasn't embarrassed to be around them. He did not partake of their sin. And that's important for us, right? We're not going to win the lost if we're not around the lost, but we're not going to win the lost if we sin alongside them, right? There's got to be a distinction, and that's so important. But the reality is we live in a world that is lost and dying. Recently, and I know I brought this statistic up, I think it was it was a while ago, but for the first time last year, they, they did, um, uh, who was it, I'm going to take a drink of coffee, maybe I'll remember. Nope. But they did a research study where they found for the first time in American history, right, in the 246 years we've been a country, that we have less than half the country who admit that they or admit or, or claim that they regularly attend church 20 years ago it was in the 70s percentage wise and now i think it was 48 percent if i remember correctly and now we're going to be really honest about that aren't we because not everybody who goes to church is a christian a lot of people go to church and go, oh, i go to church clearly I'm I'm going to heaven? Nope. Right? I love that you're here. I love going to church. But sitting in that seat and listening to me for however long I end up talking today doesn't make you saved. You need a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Period. Exclamation point. So that means if out of that 48%, even if half of them are actually Christians, that's what, 24% of America? And we're 300 and, I don't don't do math, Um, 300 and, what are we at, 40 million, 50 million? million. There you go, 333 some million. So right if you put that at 24%, 72, 73 million people. And we have a greater percentage of believers than the rest of the world, for the most part. Not in all countries, there's a few countries where uh, they are passing us. Uh, because the gospel is spreading and, and people are getting saved and the word of God is being magnified and the name of Jesus is being magnified. But the point is, we have a lot of work to do. And we don't have to go across the ocean, although some people are called to do that. We do have to go across the street. We do have to pick up a phone. Or as you all know, The souls that I am most concerned about, those poor cashiers at Walmart, they need Jesus. Do you see where they're at? But Jesus was not afraid or ashamed. And he didn't care what people thought of him. And he didn't care what he looked like in their culture. And he didn't care what they said about him. He said, these people need me. That's where I'm going. That should be our attitude. Verse 33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers? And likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. Now, If you have all four Gospels, or at least uh, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke memorized, you will notice that in other places in Scripture, in this instance particularly in Matthew 9 and Mark 2, we see a similar question posed with a similar response. On one of those occasions, it's the disciples of John the Baptist who ask him. On another, it is people who see the Pharisees and the disciples of John fasting. Here, it's the religious leaders who were observing Jesus' dinner at Matthew's house. Now, some people look at that and they go, well, one group asked him this question there, and then it says that this group asked him, oh, there's a contradiction in the Bible, we can't believe it. No. It would be absolutely crazy for us to think that Jesus was not asked the same question by different people on different occasions. I've been a pastor for 18 years, And I'm not comparing myself to Jesus, please don't take that away from what I'm about to say, but I've been a pastor for 18 years and I have had a lot of people ask me the same questions. It's just what happens. Now, I really love it when kids ask me questions because they ask the best questions, but I've had a lot of people ask me the same question. Well, where does the Bible say this? And I tell them, and I don't know, it might be a year later, it might be 10 years later, where does the Bible say, you know, that exact same thing? And Give them the same answer, because the Bible says it No, it doesn't change. But the idea that he would not have different people asking him the same question on different occasions is crazy. It's just like thinking that Jesus only gave every sermon or teaching once. He was an itinerant preacher before the internet, before digital recording or even analog recording was even thought of. And so, if he went to one place and he taught, and then he went to the next place, good chance he taught the same thing. The Sermon on the Mount is an amazing example. If you compare the Sermon on the Mount in Luke, uh, or sorry, in uh, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven, and then when we get to it in Luke, which will be in Luke chapter six, um, Luke chapter six has a much shorter version of the same message. And some people may say, oh, well, you know, because, they, you know, Luke didn't get it right or Matthew added to it. No, he surely gave that message more than once. It is probably the greatest sermon ever preached in the history of mankind. Why wouldn't you preach it again? And maybe the second time you didn't have quite as much time. So it's a little shorter. I don't know. But the point is, we don't have to look at this and think, oh, well, see, the Bible is full of mistakes. It's not. So he talks about the bridegroom. I'm going to move past that. I'll get on my soapbox about contradictions and the authenticity and reliability of the Bible, and we'll be here until tomorrow. Which, we were in Acts chapter 19, and Paul preached a sermon that went from dinnertime till sunrise, and it was so long somebody died. So, you ever think I'm long winded? Go read Acts chapter 19. So the bridegroom, the man getting married, would not have his best man or his ushers fast during the wedding. That wouldn't make sense, would it? Once the bridegroom is gone, then it would make sense for them to fast. While Jesus was with his disciples, they did not need to fast, though they likely participated in fasts in relation to the law and the various feasts. However, Once Jesus was gone, whether it was the three days and three nights leading up to his resurrection or after he ascended into heaven 40 days after that, then it would be time to fast. And speaking of fasting, Matthew chapter 6, 16 through 18, in that version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us very specific instructions about fasting, and it should be in your notes, and it is up there. We're going to turn to Isaiah 58, so if you want to make your way there while I'm reading this passage, it might save you a little bit of time. Moreover, when you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward, but you... When you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, so that you not you do not appear to men to be fasting. But to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret, will reward you openly. Notice it says, when you fast. Not if, when. And I like that. As Christians, as followers of Christ, it is assumed that fasting will be part of our regular spiritual discipline. Now, because of that, some people get the idea that fasting is, you know, I can't eat anything and uh, I can't, you know, nothing but water for three days or, or whatever it might be. But that's not necessarily the case. That's why we're looking at Isaiah 58. And we're going to read the whole chapter because it's short. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet, tell my people their transgressions and the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I have chosen? A day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? It's exactly what Jesus is talking about there disfiguring your face, refusing to bathe is essentially, you know, anointing your head and washing your face, right? So I'm not going to take a bath and I'm going to walk around. Oh, what's wrong? I'm fasting for the Lord. At that very moment, your fast is worthless. And Jesus said that there in Matthew six and Isaiah. Well, it's still Jesus because he wrote the Bible through the Holy spirit, but it's right there, right? Is that what I want you to do? To sit in sackcloth and ashes? To bow your head down like a bulrush? Is that how I want you to fast? Nope. Verse 6. Is this not the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness. To undo the heavy burdens. To let the oppressed go free and that you break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Your healing shall spring forth speedily and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, then your light shall dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as the noonday. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Those from among you shall build the old waste places. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations, and you shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable, honorable. And shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. And I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Man, Isaiah was a much better preacher than I am. That's good. That's what we're called to. That's the fast that he wants. Now, does that mean that you you don't have to ever fast food or whatever? I think it's an effective way of fasting. Some people can't do that. Right? Some people, maybe you're diabetic and the idea of fasting for, for several days in a row would be detrimental to your health. Or maybe if somebody's pregnant or maybe if somebody is, I don't know, preparing to run a marathon. If you are getting ready for a marathon Don't fast beforehand. You will die. Okay, you might not die, but you're not going to finish the marathon, right? Carb loading. It's my favorite thing about doing long races when I did them a few years ago. Carb loading the couple days before. And my wife would go, why are you eating, you know, a cupcake? Carb loading. That's not what carb loading is, right? It's supposed to be complex carbohydrates, things that are slow for your body to break down. I'm like, there's carbs and sugar. So I'm eating sugar. It didn't help. But what is the fast that God wants? The fast that God describes is one of sacrifice. The fast that God describes is one of putting other people ahead of yourself. The fast that God describes is taking care of those who can't take care of themselves. That is going to be much more honoring to God than giving up food for a couple days. Now, if God calls you to give up food, go for it. It's fun. By about the third day of nothing but water, you'll start seeing things. No, I'm joking. But, but you know, little visions of cupcakes will flash before your eyes. Um, but it can be, I mean, it's supposed to be quite healthy. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting to do that. Uh, but maybe you give up TV for a week. Or maybe you give up uh, social media for longer than a week. Or maybe you give up, I don't know, watching TV or, or something else. I already said that, didn't I? You should really give up TV, apparently. It's the Spirit of God right there working. Um, But whatever the case is, that time is meant to honor the Lord, not to draw attention to yourself. And that time is meant to do and say the things that he wants you to do and say, according to Isaiah 58. That time is about denying yourself for the good of others and the glory of God. That's fasting. So we get to verse 36. And I'm still in Isaiah. Then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear, and also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled, and the wineskin will be ruined but new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. So Jesus tells this parable to reveal the condition of the hearts the of those who are asking these questions. Right? You wouldn't fix a tear in an old garment with a new cloth. Now, for those of you who know how to sew, that makes a lot more sense to you than it does to me. I don't sew. Um, but if you did take a piece of new cloth and sewed it onto an old garment, what would happen when you washed it? The new cloth would shrink, it would tear away, the whole would be worse. And Jesus even says, and it won't match. I guess that was important in first century Israel that you matched. What about new wine in an old wineskin, right? Wineskins were usually made out of, and and this is real fun, either some sort of animal skin, or sometimes they would use the stomach of an animal. I think using bottles now is a big upgrade. Um, If somebody, hey, you want some sheep stomach wine? No, I don't. I really, really don't. But the point is, is it would be soft, and it would be flexible. And so if you put new wine in it, oftentimes that new wine was not fully fermented, right? They didn't have the ability to remove all of the air from the container, so it would continue to ferment. As it fermented, it would expand. As it expanded, the wine skin would stretch to make up for the expansion. But over time, because it was made out of skin of some sort, it would get dry and it would get brittle. So what if you put the new wine in there? As it fermented, it would cause it to break. And I really don't personally think it would be a big loss to lose your stomach wine. But back then, they didn't want to spill their wine. When one is used to the old wine, he says, the new is not appealing. Thinking the old is better. Isaiah 43, chapter 43, verse 18 through 21 says this. Do not remember the former things nor consider the things of old, because I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The beast of the field will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, because I give waters in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my people, my chosen, this people I have formed for myself. They shall declare my people. The new covenant that Jesus had come to establish was a new work. It was a new way for God to relate to human beings through his grace, poured out by the sacrifice of his son and confirmed by the resurrection. This new work was the new wine that he was talking about. And he needed new wineskins for that. Those whose ways were set... And who were unwilling to embrace the work God was doing among them are the old cloth and the old wineskins. And those who would rather drink the old wine, not desiring the new. Because of this, Jesus was calling out a new people in the form of the Gentile church. It's not that the Jewish people were excluded. The gospel went to the Jewish people first. Jesus was very explicit about that. As you look in the book of Acts, the gospel went to the Jewish people first. But what happened? <clears throat> well, there were a lot of Jewish people who got saved, there were a lot who did not. And those who did not became violent and tried to kill people, and it wasn't pretty. And eventually, Paul, even though he was one of those who tried to kill people, got to the place where he said fine, he said this to the Jewish people, you find yourself unworthy of salvation, I'll go to the Gentiles. And that's what happened. And that's why for the last 2,000 years, the church has been primarily made up of Gentiles, which is simply anyone who's not Jewish. It's you and me. I am a Gentile. Right? You know how to remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians, that order in the Bible? Gentiles eat pork chops. I was reading something very interesting. Uh, one of the first czars in Russia decided, his mother became a Christian, and this was this was thousand years ago at this point, but his mother became a Christian, and he became czar, he declared himself czar, and decided that in order to unify the people of Russia, they needed one agreed-upon religion. So he sent envoys, he sent envoys to the Muslims to learn about Islam. He sent envoys to the Jewish people to learn about Judaism. Then he sent envoys to Christians. And at the time, uh, we were actually talking about this this morning a little bit in Sunday school. At the time, Christianity was split in two. Right Today we have 89,000 denominations. That's an exaggeration, but not by much. Um, but back then there was really two, Roman Catholic and Eastern Orthodox. And so he sent Uh, envoys to those two so these four envoys or the groups came back and they presented to the czar islam judaism and the two at the time uh sects of christianity he rejected islam and judaism for one reason he didn't want to give up eating pork God can use anything, can't he? Right? Now, don't get me wrong. I don't think I could give up bacon either. I should, but I don't think I could. But that was the only reason he rejected Islam and Judaism. And because of that, the Eastern Orthodox Church, he chose Eastern Orthodox over Roman Catholicism, became big, and even throughout the communist period, um, where... It was decreed that everybody had to be an atheist. The Eastern Orthodox Church in Russia continued, and still does to this day. Why did I tell that story? Gentiles! So this applies to the Gentile Church today. How many works of God have been hindered or missed by those who refuse to let go of the past and embrace what God wants to do? If it is a new work of God, it will always be in line with his word. So don't take a newfangled idea as though it is from God if it is in opposition to or contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture. But, here's an example. There were many churches that were very slow to embrace the internet. And don't get me wrong, the internet is filled with evil. And and that's just the truth. But, Many churches were like, well, we're not going to have anything to do with it, right? We're, We're not going to put services or sermons or anything like that online. Now, the Internet does not replace gathering together in person to worship and fellowship and grow, right? This is vital. But the Internet sends the gospel to all kinds of places. Every month I get a report from where we post our audio sermons every month, sermonaudio.com. And every month when I get that report, I am amazed about where people in the world have listened to our messages. We've had people inside China listening to our messages, inside Afghanistan, Iraq, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia. We've had people throughout Africa. We've had people in uh, the Philippines, um, We're really popular in England. I don't know why. Maybe they think my accent is funny. But for some reason, when it comes to outside of the United States, we're really popular in England. In the United States, we're really popular in the Pacific Northwest for some reason. There are more people in the state of Oregon who listen to our messages than in Colorado. On sermonaudio.com anyway. I can't explain it. But look at where the gospel can go because of that. And there were a lot of churches that were slow to embrace it. What about church music? This is always a fun thing to bring up. right? What about church music? You guys have all heard of Isaac Watts. Right? He was a prol- prolific hymn writer. And he went to his father and to the church leadership at his time, which was a couple hundred years ago, And all they sang at the time were the psalms. Right? we got 150 songs. Why do we need any more than that? And he told them, I want to do something else. I want to do something besides just singing the psalms. The church as a whole, the church he was in, the church that his father pastored, rejected him. He said, this is insane. You can't do that. And his father looked at him and said, well, just quit complaining. If you're going to do it, do it. And he started writing hymns. You can pick up pretty much any hymnal and you will find a few songs, at least, written by Isaac Watts. I think he ended up writing a couple thousand before it was all said and done. And then, oh, 35, 40 years ago, what happened? Some crazy person picked up a guitar. He said, let's sing songs to God with this. And what did the church do? No, we can't get rid of Isaac Watts hymns. When Isaac Watts was writing hymns, they said, no, we can't get rid of the Psalms. Now there's a church, and its I, I think it's in Michigan, the first church of heavy metal. Dead serious. Dead serious. Thousands of people are getting saved because of their ministry. You want to know who's getting saved? Bikers. Right? They got people showing up, and, and, and the people who still think it's 1982, and they spike their hair up because they think punk is still a thing. It's not. Right? But they go there, and you want to know what they do? They do some of the same songs we do, but instead of an acoustic guitar, it's a heavily distorted electric guitar. Instead of a a, a cajon, a nice little drum beat thing going on, full drum set, double bass, 84 cymbals, surrounded by a guy who you would probably run away from if you saw him in a dark alley. But they're there worshiping Jesus, and people are getting saved. I listened to one of their services once, and I'm like, yeah, I'd go there. That'd be fun. I might not wear a Hawaiian shirt that day, but still, I'd go there. That would be fun. Because sometimes God just wants to do something new. Now, for a song to be sung in church, I don't care what the the style or genre it is, um, it has to be theologically sound. And personally, I prefer songs that focus on who God is and what he has done for us. Nevertheless, the battle over church music rages on because some are not willing to embrace anything new, and they prefer to stick to the old, even though many quote-unquote modern worship songs are theologically rich and excellent for congregational singing. Right? I would never fight over that. If, if your church, or you've been to a church where they, where they have an old organ, and, and the lady who's sitting there playing it is going to die at that organ, maybe during that service, right you're never quite sure and but you can go there and you can sit on that wooden pew right wooden pews people didn't fall asleep as much in church when the pews were wooden it was perfect i said that as someone was young um but uh and you can worship god awesome if you want to be in a church where you're a little more mild like we are but we sing some modern stuff and some old stuff and we kind of put it all together awesome if you want to go visit the first church of heavy metal let me know i'll go with you because it doesn't matter what matters is our heart before god when it comes to worship so my point is this if we are going to be part of the work of god there will be times When we have to be willing to let go of the old way of doing things. This doesn't mean we compromise the word. Nor does it mean that we forget our past or the way those who have come before us have done things. Especially when those things were effective. But what it means is that when God wants to do something new. Or he wants to do something he's always done like sharing the gospel. But wants to do it in a new way. We have to be willing vessels. We have to be flexible. I love Pastor Chuck. I talk about Pastor Chuck a lot. He had a great quote, and he used to say, Blessed are the flexible, for they shall not break. And I love that. Because God is going to do things His way. And God is always going to do things in accordance with His Word. And we have to be willing to participate in what God is doing even if it means we have to be flexible. Even when it means we don't get to do it our way. And I'm going to tell you something. If it comes down to his way or my way, which way do you think is going to work? My way. No, absolutely not. My way is not going to work. His way is going to work. So the word that comes to mind to, it, for me is the word yield. As in we have to be willing to yield to the Word of God and the leading of God's Spirit. In 2 Chronicles chapter 30, verse 8. Wow, he's pulling out a verse from 2 Chronicles. Yep, dove deep for this one. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were, but yield yourselves to the Lord and enter His sanctuary, which He has sanctified forever. And serve the Lord your God, that the fierceness of his wrath may turn away from you. What does it say? We yield to him and we serve him. Sometimes he might ask you to do something that you're like, really? But if it's in line with his word and it's the leading of the Holy Spirit, then step out and do it. It'll be cool. As we close, this passage today teaches us I think really three simple truths. I talked about them probably a lot longer than I needed to. But I still think they're fairly simple. First, if we're going to reach the lost for Jesus Christ, then we have to go to the lost in order to reach them. We cannot sit in our building and hope that they come to us. Second, as followers of Christ, we should be people who practice the spiritual discipline of fasting. And when we fast, though, we're to fast God's way and not ours. Finally, if we're going to be part of the work God wants to do in our world, then we have to be flexible when God wants to do something new, or he wants to do something we've always done in a new way. We will never compromise the word of God, but we have to be willing to embrace what God wants to do. How he wants to do it, when he wants to do it, and where he wants to do it. So as always, I have a few questions uh, to make us all uncomfortable before we go home. First one, have you become a new vessel in which God wants to work by being reconciled to God through the gospel of Jesus Christ? That is the first and most important question that any of us can answer. If you don't know Jesus, nothing else matters. Dead serious. You may feel like other things matter. And I'm not trying to dismiss or diminish anything that's going on in your life. But apart from Christ, nothing else matters. He came, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death. Three days later, he rose again. And he tells us very simply that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're here, or if you're joining us online, or you hear this recording at some point and you don't know Christ as Savior, let us know. Leave me a message. Send me an email. Put a comment on Facebook, um, let us know. Because I don't want you to leave today without knowing Jesus Christ. Number two, are you going to where the lost are to share the gospel? I'm not saying you should put yourself in a compromising or sinful position to do this. But the big question is, are you going? Or are you hoping they'll come to you? Number three, is fasting God's way a spiritual discipline that you regularly practice? Fasting is between you and God, and as we looked at in Isaiah 58, may not even involve going without food. Praise the Lord. But it should be something we are practicing in our spiritual lives regularly. It's one of our challenges for this year. Actually, well, two of our challenges for this year One is to invite or share the gospel with one person each month. And one is to spend at least one day a month fasting and prayer. Finally, are you flexible and yielded to what God wants to do in and through your life and our church? Now, I'm very grateful. Uh, We've never had anybody in our church go, well, we're not doing it that way because we've never done it that way before. Um And uh, just because I know me and you know me, if you said that to me, it probably wouldn't be a fun conversation. But are you yielded to that in your own life? Because there's a lot going on. And God wants us surrendered to him so he can work through our lives. If he didn't want that, we wouldn't be here. But we are here So I guarantee that's what he wants. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And we give you all the glory for your work in our lives. I thank you for Jesus Christ, our Savior. I thank you, Lord, for your incredible love for each of us. I pray, Father, if there's anybody listening to this message, whether it's here or at some other time, if they don't know Jesus, that they would come to a relationship with him i pray father that you would give us a heart to go to the lost i pray that you would give us the discipline to regularly practice fasting and i pray father that you would help us all yield and surrender to you i pray father as we go about the rest of our day and the rest of our week that you would be glorified in all of it in jesus name amen